Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 17th, 2018. This is episode 2148 of the Survival Podcast, 2148. And I have a special guest coming on the line in just a bit. His name is Ryan Llewellyn, and he has a podcast called The Cold War Cast, where he is chronicling the history of the Cold War from the end of World War II up through, uh, I guess, eventually the uh, the breakup of the Soviet Union. Really cool guy with a really cool show. And we're going to talk about the Cold War to a degree today, but what we're really going to talk about is dystopian fiction uh, of the Cold War era that takes place all or part in the time of the Cold War. We're going to talk about things like the ultimate prepper porn, right, Red Dawn, right, uh, the day after, if you remember that movie, if you didn't grow up in the 1980s or 70s, maybe, and we're a little older and watching it, or, well, you know, not a parent of kids from that era, you, you may not have, uh, ever seen the day after, but you'll hear my reaction when he brings it up in this interview. If you were, uh, if you were a young child in the 1980s, you watched this movie, it probably left a mark on you forever. Uh, also we'll talk about 1984. We'll talk about the Twilight Zone a little bit. And how things have changed in the way people look at the world. And we'll talk about pattern recognition and seeing how many of these things in this dystopian world actually have come to be in the modern world, but yet they're wrapped up in shiny packaging so we don't recognize them. So it'll be a cool show. Uh, I don't know if it'll tell you a lot of things to go do, but it'll also, but it will open your mind in the way you think and maybe challenge you a little bit. So that's the type of show you're in store for today. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. You can find his website where? Directive21.com. Directive21.com. As you might imagine, you can get from the Berkey Guy Berkey water filtration systems. And, you know, a lot of people sell, sell Berkey, so why would you get it from the Berkey Guy? Well, why the hell wouldn't you? I mean, he's the Berkey Guy. Do you think anybody's going to do a better job for you with Berkey than the Berkey guy? Seriously. And the, the guy, and he's been the Berkey guy for like 10 years too. It's not like he just woke up tomorrow, yesterday and said, Oh, I'm going to be the Berkey guy. Seriously, Jeff's been with us for uh, seven, eight years as a sponsor. He always takes care of this community. He has a maniac-like work, work ethic. And he is the best place for a Berkey or the supplies for your Berkey. But many other prepping items you can find at Directive21.com. Jeff is the guy to get your Berkey from, though. And remember, guys, when they give you that boil water advisory, yeah, your water was already screwed up before they told you about it. The only way to make sure the water you're drinking is always safe is a good filter system. And I don't know one that looks better, works better, or costs less long-term by the ounce of the gallon or the 100 gallons than the Berkey system. So check them out today, directive21.com. Next up today, knifekits.com. You know, making knives is one of those things that... It, it, it can really be difficult. Like, if you're like, I'm going to go out and find steel, I'm going to forge it myself, and stuff like that. And there's definitely a place for that. I mean, I love handcrafted knives. People that have just listened to this show for a long time know it's something I really, really do love and appreciate. But I also like seeing people have the ability to learn how to do these things and have a, an entry point. And Knife Kits has everything to get you involved in making knives. Or if you're a master bladesmith already doing that, incredible materials to do it with. Mammoth Tusk is one of the things that you can get from uh, KnifeKits.com to make handles for your knives. But you get common things like Kydex and things like that, Damascus steel, or simple kits. 
where the knife's pretty much already shaped out. You get some handle material. You attach the handle material, do your bolsters and what have you, do your final fit finishing and sharpening, maybe make a sheath for it. You can do it all at KnifeKits.com. They're a long-term supporter of the show. So when you're thinking about getting into this hobby or if you're continuing in this hobby, get in touch with them because they've been a good supporter of the show that you listen to Monday through Friday, five days a week. We don't have a history segment today, so I'll just remind you real quick, the easiest way to support our show, join the Member Support Brigade. And kind of on that note, I have brought you this year ButcherBox as a discount supporting vendor. I have brought you GunAdapters.com as a supporting vendor. I'm announcing today that I have added OMG Leatherworks as a supporting vendor. You'll see an official announcement on the blog about them tomorrow. I have brought you Ridge Wallet as a supporting vendor of the MSB. It is January the 17th, and today I won't tell you who, but I just closed another deal for you for another MSB supporting vendor that many of you are going to be like, this is awesome. I have said... 2018 is the year of the MSB. I'm not kidding. I've got the gas to the floor. I'm not slowing down. And I'm beating these guys up just a little bit to get you significant enough discounts that they really matter. I want to make the MSB where if you use it four or five times a year, you're so far ahead financially, you would never stop being a member, even if you decided I sucked. That's that's the value proposition. Jack sucks, but, you know... Crazy anarchist idiocy. I, but I get all this stuff and it costs less because of him. So I don't care. That's how I want the MSB to be. I think I've done a good job of making that it that way, but y'all ain't seen nothing yet, man. We're going to have to play some BTO one day for song of the day on that note. I love that old song. Anyway, consider joining the MSB. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and how to sign up there. All right. So with that, let's go ahead and get into it. I'm bringing on our special guest now, Mr. Ryan Llewellyn. He is the host of the Cold War cast, chronicling the history of the Cold War. We're here today to talk about dystopian fiction, a lot of other cool stuff. With that, hey, Ryan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Jack. Hey, I'm excited to have you. This is, I think, a really interesting topic. We're going to talk about... Um, some really cool stuff today with you uh, and your role as the host of the Cold War cast and uh, dystopian fiction, how that relates to value in the prepping world, etc. But before we do, can you tell us, you know, who the hell is Ryan Llewellyn? Let's go back to like, I don't know, you're sitting in study hall, you know, in 11th grade space and out or something. And, and you know, how's your life go from there? What you do? What did you do professionally? Uh, what led you to get into podcasting, that type of thing? Well, I think actually in 11th grade study hall, I skipped out a few times to go to the bookstore because um, I was always into things related to military, history, geography, and those kind of things. So I was just, you know, kind of a kid with a lot of interest like that and on my own program. Um, after high school, I joined the Marine Corps Reserve, and um, that was in 1999. And, you know, kind of like, a lot of uh, kids kicked around a little bit in those years after high school, um, odd jobs, kind of in and out of community college and so forth. And then I went to Iraq in 2004 slash 2005, and that had a pretty profound impact on me, um, really changed my perspective on a lot of things in life. Then came back home, uh, maybe with a little bit more direction than I had before. Um, went back to my job at a tire factory where I still work today. 
and um, finished school through correspondence, kind of using spare minutes at the job to, you know, do my reading and writing out notes and so forth. And um, about maybe five years ago, I, I wrote a book on Amazon, just a Kindle ebook about Red Dawn and um, kind of uh, found a lot of death. Uh, depth to it really and um decided well to start this podcast after uh kind of ruminating on it for a few years very very cool and uh you know we've talked about red dawn on the show and i've <laughs> said it's kind of like the ultimate prepper porn movie or something you know and i think a lot of people i think part of it is just that and i'm talking about the original one with patrick swayze and charlie sheen right a lot of yeah. people that are in the the mindset of hey you know we should be prepared today are people in their 30s and 40s and we grew up in the 70s and 80s so that it's like the movie from that time in that world but i, I do believe there is some value in like dystopian apocalyptic fiction even though reality ain't quite like the movies and ever will be what, what do you say on that like what is the value in, in that that genre of either movie or book or what have you well i think dystopian fiction along with you know even some historical accounts they're valuable because um, they allow us to envision alternate realities and we get to see other people's thoughts on how to deal with those things and also you know we're sitting on the outside we can kind of interject our own so really they're good mental exercises i think if you if you use them the right way very very and, cool oh go ahead oh no and i, I also think um Sometimes some of these ones, like, you know, we're about to talk about uh, Red Dawn and so forth, um, they reach a wider audience than a lot of uh, prepper porn. And it, it also sparks discussions at a societal level as opposed to just the individual level. Very, very cool. Um, so what are some more mainstream examples of doomsday fiction, like the films or book, uh, can be just as valuable as the, the typical prepper porn, you know? Um, well, of course, Red Dawn, and uh, then there's The Day After, which is a, a really, really good one from about the same period as Red Dawn. Oh, I remember that, dude. <laughs> I, I, I'm a bit older than you. I was in, like, second or third grade in freaking Catholic school uh, in in the 80s when that movie came out. And we were still doing the stuff like every once in a while they would have these drills where you'd hide under your desk like that was going to freaking help. And that movie came on and, you know, you're talking, instead of like being a school where they're like there's 10 second grade classes, you got one second, one third grade class with like 18 kids in it, so everybody knows everybody. Everybody was scared shitless. I'm serious, man. That That movie freaked us out because that was back when you still had four channels. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, you were going to end up watching something like that when it came on. And, yeah. man, I mean, I think it, it went like over a weekend or something because it was like we had, when we came in, we had seen both because it was a two parter. And that freak, I mean, everybody was freaked out about that. <laughs> the thing that blows my mind about that is um, they, have, they had a discussion panel afterwards. And they had. Um, I don't know how they rounded all these people up, but like Carl Sagan, uh, Robert McNamara, um, that Eli Weasel guy or whatever, um, 
basically a, a lot of heavy hitters really from that time just to sit around and discuss nuclear warfare. And uh, I mean, can you really imagine a show like that now really meriting that much discussion? Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know that it would. I don't think people have, I don't know, after that little text message went out to Hawaii, it's on people's minds. But you know what I was thinking when that happened? It's, it's a mistake. Like, it didn't even, like, I know there were people in Hawaii, like, they said they freaked out or whatever. And I, I think some did, but I think most people in Hawaii went, this, is, this isn't real. Like, but if that would have happened in 85... Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. People would have been outside with a shovel trying to dig a hole to get into. I'm, I'm serious. Like, it is a totally different mindset. And I think in some ways it's, it's legitimately should be a different mindset. We, we don't have the two nuclear superpowers of the world, you know, sitting with fingers inches away from the button looking at each other like a uh, Mexican standoff. We're not yeah. in that place anymore. But... You know, shit goes wrong fast, and it usually the worst things usually happen when you're not expecting something to go wrong. You know what yeah. I mean? Absolutely, and uh, that's kind of part of the reason why the day after, um, I mean, it was a really big uh, made-for-TV movie when it came out, but it's kind of, um, I don't know, kind of sitting on the dust pile right now, really, just because, um, you know, that, that threat isn't as relevant as it was back then. Yeah, definitely. What do you do? You kind of feel that Red Dawn, in some ways, maybe was an anti-war film, and maybe oh. hasn't been seen that way, even though it's really what it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that I think is kind of funny is when you bring up Red Dawn. A lot of times, people will say uh, Red Dawn's unrealistic. I mean, you know, maybe some of the technical details are, but kind of the punchline of it is that everything that happened in Red Dawn was happening to somebody, like, at that period in 1984. And, and next time, when they I invaded Afghanistan. Um, I'm going to try to be brief. And also, this is what issue, people in the Soviet Union, um, if you think about it, in 1984, if you were an adult in the Soviet Union, either you went through basically what happened in Red Dawn, or your parents went through it, or, you know, maybe they didn't make it through it. But um, it, it is kind of funny how people you know, might say it's unrealistic, but like, yeah, this is what a lot of the world, how a lot of the world experiences war. And I think that was the point to kind of show what war actually looks like on a familiar setting. So like, yeah, absolutely. I think it is an anti-war film or at least one that's just designed to open up eyes about what war really looks like. Well, I mean, the reality is, and you can, you could try to drag like the terrorist attacks of 9-11 into this, but that's not, that's not full scale war, right? No living American has ever seen war on American soil in a full-blown war. We, there are some people left around that, that maybe were in Pearl Harbor that saw America bombed. But that, right. wasn't, that was a bombing. It wasn't an invasion. And it's the closest thing we've had. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. I mean, I used to see the Spanish-American War a little bit, but not really. Right, so like to actually think about full scale war on American soil, you have to go back to the Civil War or the war between the states. Right, yeah. And there's no one that can understand so we have like this I think this taste for war, 
because we've never actually had to deal with the. And I know our men did, so I don't want anybody getting back and hear the keyboard going now, right? Anger, because I'm sure you get through the anger emails, right? But what I mean is the American person who sits back and maybe has to deal with the price of gas going up, or during World War II not being able to get as much aluminum foil or whatever, has never actually dealt with war from the the, the perspective of a civilian. And that's, you know, they took the, the, the Red Dawn thing in the way of a, a group of, uh, uh, you know, uh, rebels, you know, or guerrilla warriors. But yeah. as a civilian, because civilians fare the worst in war when they're in the middle of it. Right, yeah, absolutely. And, it, you know, if you think about um, Iraq, Afghanistan, even Vietnam, uh, we were largely fighting civilians. And that kind of the reality of war that a lot of times, yeah, the civilians, of course, are the ones that suffer, but um, civilians are often the ones that end up fighting the wars, too, which is something that's, uh, you know, maybe kind of lost on us in the United States sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, what influence do you think that these films and books and things like that have really had on the prepper world? Uh Boy, a, a ton, really. Um, and I, I think kind of the larger picture, the whole atomic era or nuclear era, um, really had a profound impact on the world of survivalism, uh, prepping, and so forth, just because they kind of uh, big these questions to such a large audience. So, you know, we watch Red Dawn, and, uh, you know, there's kind of the famous scene of him uh, raiding, or not raiding, but... Um, taking everything from that camping supply store. But, you know, you figure millions of people are probably watching that and thinking in their head, like, well, what kind of things do I need in case, you know, something bad ever happens? And, um, you know, millions of people would have watched uh, the day after and, you know, saw, you know, all the deprivations, I guess, you know, that happened in the aftermath of a nuclear attack or whatever. And, uh, Maybe they thought it might be a good idea to keep around, you know, a radio, some food, um, water, and so forth, just in case something like this happens. But I think in general, um, during the Cold War, they really did push um, preparedness to people. Um, I've got some uh, PDF files of, um, you know, like the old government pamphlets and stuff like that about what to do in case we're ever nuked and uh, you know, a lot of times, like, yeah, they, they do encourage, you know, keep food and keep, you know, radios, medical supplies and this and that. So, I don't know. I just think maybe um, we did have have a culture that because of the Cold War and the prospect of uh, things going south. Oh, definitely. I have upstairs in, in, one, of, in one of my uh, closets upstairs, just as a piece of history, two big cans. They're about a yeah. little bit bigger than an ammo can. And they're full of saltine crackers. Nice. <laughs> Never been opened, and they have stamped dates on them. One's from 63 and one's from 66. <laughs> and the fact that those existed, and there's actually there's a lot. You can pick them up for like 20 bucks a, a can on eBay, which is kind of actually a cool piece of history, honestly. And, you know, someday maybe we'll open it up and try to get somebody to eat one, right? But yeah. uh, there's actually videos of people on YouTube eating them, and, like, they're edible, but they're not good. <laughs> yeah, edible, but not, yeah. But uh, the fact that those exist, and what has happened is many of these uh, these shelters were built under large buildings and things like that for like public shelters that had you know cases and cases of this shit back there. And over the last like twenty years, a lot of these buildings they did major you know retrofit redesign and 
people forgot all about the fact there was a shelter down there, and you know, yeah. the general contractor comes in and gets prints from 50 years ago. Like, what the hell is that? What can we do with this? We need to put a boiler in. We need to oh, we can put it down here. And they go in there, and there's stacks of it, there was water, candies, and crackers. Yep. that they found, and it's all of these big cans, and that shows you there was a culture of that, and there are a lot of houses that were built, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, that still have bunkers behind oh, yeah. them. Yeah. I, I wish I could find one that I could buy, honestly, I mean, especially if you live in Tornado Alley, I'm not so worried about, you know, nukes coming there or anything, but <laughs> it's not like there's that value, I mean, underground storage alone, it's just awesome, but yeah, there is a, there is a lot of I think a lot of the concept of being prepared got lost because we entered a world where I don't think people have, they don't believe they have anything to fear. And right. I think the value of preparedness mindset that a lot of us in the 70s and 80s grew up with wasn't so much so we were prepared for nuclear war because, frankly, especially at the levels of munitions that we had back then, I don't know that it was going to matter. But the fact that you had a fear of something going wrong made you do things so that when something else went wrong, you had some way of dealing with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you, you know, kind of take the basic steps towards, you know, being prepared for global thermonuclear war or whatever, uh, you're going to be fine when the power goes out or anything (laughs) like that. Yeah. 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 Um, So... The, one of the other big time dystopian works and, and something that like I would bet half of adults have either read or at least have knowledge of is George Orwell's uh, 1984. Yes. What, what parallels do you see between the novel 1984 and, and the world of 2018? Um, I think one of the biggest things that I see, and this was a huge preoccupation of George Orwell, was the use of language. And how language um, shapes uh, discourse, I guess. Um, you know, in, in the book they talk about uh, new speak and double speak, where uh, basically they take away words um, to make it impossible for thought crime. So if vocabulary is limited, um, there's only certain you know thoughts and ways people can express things like that. But now, I don't think today we're as bad as uh, Orwell's Newspeak, but it, it is interesting to note whenever there's political discussions or, um, you know, any things of those nature, sometimes you have to pay attention to what people are saying and, um, and kind of see how they're trying to obscure certain things by using different language. Um, you, you know, one example, uh, the abortion debate. You know, there's, you know, one side's pro-life, one side's pro-choice. Um, you know, who wants to be anti-life or who wants to be anti-choice? You know, when you speak in those terms, um, it, it changes the discourse, um, kind of like the immigration debate right now. Well, you know, if you talk about let's, you know, boot out all the dreamers, um, you know, no one's going to say it like that. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, like on the other side, if you call them, you know, illegal immigrants or, um you know, undocumented workers or this or that, it, it changes the tone of the conversation, I think. Or, yeah. you know, oh, no, you're, you're, no, you're dead on. And it also makes me think of like, so another movie that's not dystopian at all, right? Back to the Future. Yeah. Like, you have to interpret something written in the past about the future through a, a, the correct lens. So yeah. if we look at the movie Back to the Future, does. 2018 look like it was projected to look with flying cars and all. 
No, but there's a lot of things that <clears throat> were in that, you know, that kind of Ford, I guess was the second one or whatever, that really are here, but they don't look like they did. They were based on the concepts understood in, I think, about 85 when that second one came out. So what I'm thinking of is there's a point where he's in the future, you know, and he's about this time of, of the you know world, and he's looking at a newspaper, and the newspaper says it's going to start raining in five minutes. Like a screen came up on it, and it said that was going to happen, and it, then all of a sudden he looks and it starts raining. And you say, well, that's not the way things are. Well, they didn't know what the hell a smartphone was going to be. Exactly. But your weather app with group group think and, and, and crowdsourcing, my weather app says rain will begin in five minutes. Not because the National Weather Service knows that. Because people using that app say it's raining here, and it, it forms a pattern, and the computer says, oh, it's going this way. It's about five minutes out from this user and gives me an alert. That's exactly what that newspaper did for Michael J. Fox, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of funny that it's the newspaper that's obsolete, really. That's the thing they missed the mark on. Correct, but yeah. the overriding message of what the technology would do exactly. is spot on, and I think we have to look at things like 1984 that way. Yeah. Right, because that was written well before 1984, and this world is way different than 1984. So what you have to look for is the underlying components, like you were talking about you know, changing the way you describe something. Well, the other thing is removing words from the language. Yes. Yeah. That was a key tenet. So all of a sudden, you know, you, 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 you can't say that there's only two genders anymore, or you can't say this word because it's offensive, or that word because it's offensive, and now fart rape is a thing. <laughs> and, and it is this, and if you if you think about eighty four, it was the intellectuals that ended up in control of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And who's outraged with words right now? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, intellectual exactly. and who are the last people that truly should be outward outraged with words right now intellectual should be the last people the classic liberal should be the last person to suppress speech yeah and orwell um pretty much right before he wrote um 1984 uh he put out an essay it's called um i think like politics in the english language and it, it really kind of sets the stage for um this theme in 1984 where he kind of talks about um Examples of this and how you know people should be more direct and clear, um, especially like in the realm of politics, and you know how they're not. So that is one worth uh, tracking down. Orwell, um, I think politics in the English language. You know, I've never read that, but you know when I think of things like you know war is peace, right, and just the changing the overall meaning of, of words, and I look at the way we act today, or I should say a way a segment of us act. And mostly a younger segment, which one thing people always need to realize, the younger segment eventually becomes the controlling segment of society. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's why people with political agendas always go after the youth. Yeah. Because the, the, the 15-year-old is 10 years from being the 25-year-old and 20 years from being the 35-year-old and being the defining demographic of society. So if you're wanting to move the needle in your political direction, you need to influence the 15 to 25 year old because they're they're within a decade becoming the people who have the most control in society. Yeah, and that's actually definitely a, a pretty big theme in 1984 too. Um there's a real I guess atomization of the individual um even within the family where children are encouraged to basically monitor their parents. 
sort of thought crime. There's um, a couple of characters in the book, the Parsons. Um, they're uh, Winston Smith, the main character's neighbors. And they have a couple of kids that are very involved in the um, the, the junior spies. Uh, kind of like a, a parallel with like the Hitler youth or maybe like the communist young pioneers or whatever. And um, ultimately they, end, or well at least the dad gets tipped off um, for muttering something in his sleep by the kids. But yeah, that's um, definitely a big theme that um, the the youth may be a little more, um, oh boy, what's the word I want to use, but a little more enthusiastic towards these things sometimes and uh, maybe a little bit easier to grab onto and, you know, the future. Yeah, and I mean, another thing that, that really strikes me out of 84 is the whole concept of the screens and not being able to look away from the screens and... Um, you know, the party officials having the ability to turn off their screens, but you can't turn off your screen. And that's, I think we're back to my night, uh, my, uh, back to the future analogy there. <laughs> it's it, instead of being forced to look at the screen, the people refuse to not look at the screen. Oh, and yeah. instead of being what, you know, Orwell could understand is like a television. Uh, now the screen goes in your pocket. It goes everywhere that you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you want your little bit of validation, look at it. <laughs> well, and then that's that's even more scary, like because people actually do get their validation through the screen. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean, I guess I'm guilty of it too. You know, I use you know Facebook and everything else just like everybody else. But um, yeah, it definitely is something that um, you know maybe Orwell missed some of the uh, technical details, but. Uh, yeah, he's kind of kind of right there with that. Yeah, but and I mean, I, we're moving to where that screen is going to be the way you buy and sell everything in the world, right? I mean, that's yeah. you're gonna yeah, and that you can really freak. I was gonna do this video just to freak people out. Basically, I was gonna be like a 10 second YouTube video. I was gonna hold my uh, my phone up and I was gonna quote in my right hand and I was gonna quote the Bible and yeah. say, and no man could buy or sell unless he received the mark of the beast in his right hand. And then I was gonna look at it and say, or on his forehead. And just let it end, right? <laughs> and I mean, you know, but it's, I often think that things that are prophetic or whatever, even if they're not accurate, they end up becoming accurate in time because human nature has a course that it follows. And yeah. it is always a quest to be validated. It's always a quest to improve your own condition. And then we'll use whatever is in front of us to try to do those things, to make sure we have enough to eat, take care of our family, protect ourselves from what's dangerous. And the people that have the power understand that basic human psychology, and they can bend things to fit their ends. And their ends are actually the same as yours, but for them, not for you, if that makes sense. Yeah, and you know, one parallel, I think, between 1984 and today, um, now 1984 was written in 1948, so, you know, they kind of in, inverse the numbers, and um, it was a period of technological uncertainty. So, um, you know, television had been around for a little bit, but this was kind of the point where, um, you know, it was starting to, you know, maybe become something that the average person might encounter, but there's also the, um, you know, just discover the atomic bomb. So I, I think there's a parallel in the sense that, um, you know, today we have like the smartphones and this and that. Um, are we a little out of our league with these things? Like, are we able to handle it? Um, 
you know, like I, I believe Orwell and a lot of people from that era kind of think we outkicked our coverage a little bit with the atomic bomb. And that's that's a huge theme in like science fiction of the era, you know, like the early 50s, late 40s and so forth. Um, the idea that we kind of progress technologically um, a little bit further than um, than we have evolved as a society. So, you know, I think we're, you know, might be kind of at the cusp of that right now where we need to look at some of these things. No, I, I agree. And if, you, if the time is actually very easy to, if you have Netflix, mm-hmm. um, all you got to do is go back and start watching Rod Serling's um, Twilight Zone, the oh, original, right? Yeah. Every other episode is something to do with nuclear war. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Especially in like the first two seasons of it. Yeah, and, I agree. Um, there's, it's called like Relic Radio. They have a sci-fi show that you can uh, download off um, iTunes. They're old ones from, you know, 1950 and so forth. And yeah, damn near all of them um, have something to do with nuclear war or something that's, um, y- you know, easily um, like a metaphor for nuclear war. And, you know, I think those are kind of fun to listen to. Well, yeah, and I mean... The thing is, too, if you want to go back and, and go into that era, that 50s era, and, and get entertainment, you know, when they made a series back then, they didn't make 12 episodes a season. Right. They made, like, 40 or 45 of them. So, like, I don't remember how long Twilight Zone ran. It didn't run that long, but there's, like, several hundred episodes yeah. because they made 40 a year. Yeah, there's enough to keep you busy. <laughs> uh, and, I, you know what, I actually think that some of those shows – would be really good for people in like their twenties and teens to watch because yeah, you learn about history in school, but you don't really experience the culture of your own history from just, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah. And I I think one of the reasons that people in their forties seem to have a more balanced worldview than people in their thirties where we're not that disconnected is exactly cable television. Because when we were kids in the 80s and you got to stay up late, you had three channels plus PBS and then the one that would come in on the UHF, VHF side, and you watch stuff like Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock because... A lot of Red Dwarf. (laughs) Right. That was... Well, there was only so much available. So we were watching these, these shows that were 10, 20, 30 years old at the time when we were kids. So even though we were coming up with the technology of the 1980s, and the culture of the 1980s, we understood the, the, the culture of the 70s, the 60s, and the 50s through that television lens. We saw the, you know, the, the Brady Bunch era of the 70s, the uh, rebellious era of the 60s, and the absolute scared shitless era of the 50s. Oh, and by the way, that little thing they were all scared of, we were all scared of still, too. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's something that I think that, and this is not putting anybody down, this is just how <laughs> progression works that right about that 45-35 separation, most people just haven't had that in their background because they've been focused on other things. It's probably more productive, but it, it, you, I think you do lose something in understanding the, 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 the lens of history and the parallels to all these things being foretold that are now here just a little bit differently than they were in the book. Like Dystopian fiction always makes you feel like there's always dark gray clouds. Everything's wet. Everything stinks. Everything's dank. But the, tr- the truth is the most dystopian worlds that have ever existed often looked pretty shiny and new and nice. 
Like, Action, yeah. if you were in Nazi Germany in 1942, mm-hmm. and you didn't see an um, internment camp, and you just looked at, you know, a German city, things looked... I mean, that's part of why it was so horrific, because it could look so good while it was so horrible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was... If you were kind of on the inside of things, it was pretty good for you. <laughs> well, I think it was... It, Nazi Germany was pretty good for most people in Germany. Oh, yeah. Yeah, up until about 1944. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, everything was really good. Uh, you need a job? You got a job? You know, if, if you were a soldier, that's... You know, depending on where you went, right? I but, I mean, for the average <laughs> person in their 30s or 40s that needed a job and had to raise a family and all... Thing, I'm not. So I know I'm gonna get more hate. <laughs> right? I'm just saying, like to the person that people say, well, how could a people let a government do what that government did? Most of them were either willfully ignorant, blissfully ignorant, or truly ignorant of what was going on. And people say, well, how could you be? Well, look at the people around you today that are you know, haven't read pills yet, and tell me if they don't fit one of those three. Yeah, oh yeah. And, you know, also on that point, um, there's a comparison to the past. So, you know, after World War I um, in the 20s, uh, you know, or part of the 20s, uh, Germany had a pretty rough go. Um, you know, if you ever want to read some kind of true horror, read about Germany during um, the Weimar period, during the inflation, you know, the inflation, um, you know, that we kind of probably all know a little bit about. But that was not a nice time to be alive. No. And, you know, if they change the economy, everything, you know, the trains are running on time again. Um, yeah, it would be pretty easy for people to say, hey, yeah, everything's okay. Yeah, and, and, and then there'd be a fear. Like, So the other thing would be, yeah, they're doing some things they really shouldn't do, but we don't really look at that or see that or don't know that. Yeah. And then the other thing that nobody wants to admit, across the Western world, mm-hmm. anti-Semitism was pretty high everywhere. Yeah. So people were willing to go, yeah, it's just them. Yeah. Especially if they didn't know the totality of what was going on. If they bought into any of the propaganda, oh, we're just relocating people or whatever. Or, and then people that would normally not accept something like that as being valid when three years ago they were scraping to get enough potatoes to keep their kids from starving this week, and today they can feed them, and they're afraid they could go back there. And then eventually you get afraid that, well, if I say something, they'll come for me. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden you have a complacent society in the middle of a tyrannatorial dictatorship. But if you were an outsider looking in and no one told you, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you, okay. If you looked at that, it would look like a well-functioning, well-ordered society where people had it pretty good. Um, I, I don't know if you've seen any of a Man in the High Castle. Um, you know, I've seen like the first episode or two of it. That is exactly what I'm talking about. And it really drove yeah. it home for me because it takes place like in the 60s, but the Nazis won. And yeah. so did the Japanese. Well, the Nazis come in with fascism instead of Japanese imperialism. And the 1960s America that's there, except for the fact that people are being drugged off and killed and shit like that, <laughs> right, looks like 1960s America. Oh, yeah. yeah. The housewives are all done up in buns, and they have their social groups, and everybody's happy. And, you know, it's, 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 not, a, it's not, to use a, a term that's real popular right now, it's not a shithole. <laughs> Pacific states under Japanese rule, complete shithole. Yeah. Total, because they're just there like, we don't give a shit about you, we're extracting from you. Where the Nazis are trying to model America in their own image. Yeah. And again, I'm not supporting fascism, because I, I, <laughs> I, 
I know whenever I talk about these, I get the hate mail. I'm just analyzing how these things can look because if we don't do that, then we can't realize that maybe we're kind of sort of in something similar in yeah, a different I way. I think an um, article that came out um, I, when Man in the High Castle first started coming out, but um, it was somebody critical of the show basically because, um, yeah, it was like America under Nazi rule didn't look all that bad, you know, other than, you know, of course, the taking people away and all that, but just kind of day-to-day life didn't look all that bad. So like they were saying they were kind of um, endorsing Nazism by making things that way. Sometimes the truth is uncomfortable, but it's still the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And again, I'm back to, if you went to Germany in 19... Well, what what year was it that they did the Olympics there? Was it 38? um, It was 38 or 36. Something like that. And it, it was a pretty cool place to be. Oh, oh, yeah. And by then, Hitler was in command, right? I'm not saying it was a good place to be. I'm saying that like, if you didn't know and if nobody bothered you, you'd be like, oh, this is all right. Yeah. And, and and that's, I think, this big swing and miss by miss most dystopian fiction is creating that dark. Like, it's, it wouldn't matter who's in control. The sun's either going to come out today or it's not. It's not going to be cloudy every day because a bad guy's in charge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it almost, like some authors and and media creators almost seem to take that angle, like, and I guess it's just setting the mood and the tone yeah. so that you feel it, but it's not realistic. Right, yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, you know, kind of like 1984, um, you, you know, sometimes they do use um, kind of cold and um, damp, you know, kind of gloomy conditions, you know, for foreshadowing and so forth. But, um, you know, I guess it also mentions uh, nice, bright, sunny days, too, you know, as, a, yeah. as it keeps turning. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, it was like they were the, the newscaster recently was like right before New Year's, like it's going to get really cold here, and it's like New Year's is coming, but will the weather cooperate? I, I'm like, I think January first is coming, whether it's cold, hot, right? And like, it, there's almost a, like a, a weird disconnect in people's heads now that like, like we have more control, I think, than we do over things or yeah, that how things actually work. <laughs> what do you think all this says about our reliance on government when we look at things through this lens? Um, sometimes I think that we put a little bit too much faith in them. Um, you know, they're infallible or, you know, fallible or whatever. Um, they're just as vulnerable sometimes as we are to things too. And I I think, um, the day after this one out of like all the films we talked about probably does the best job on showing, um, how, I don't know, fragile or tenuous sometimes our uh, reliance, our complete reliance on government can be. Um, there's a really cool scene in that one where um, I suppose we should say the film takes place like in Kansas City and Lawrence, Kansas and, uh, you know, some farm country around that area. And there's a couple of farm families that they um, go through in the, in the film. And, you know, after the bomb comes, there's a an agent from the government or, you know, USDA or something like that. And he's having a meeting with the farmers and he's kind of talking about how, um, you know, they're going to do things going forward and, you know, get everybody back farming and this and that. And he's telling these guys that, you know, the soil is going to be radiated. So they're going to need to scrape away, I think like the top six inches of soil to plant. And like, you know, everyone's kind of like, well, what do you mean? How are we going to do this? Where are we going to put the soil? And uh, <laughs> he throws his hands up because, you know, I mean, you know, he knows he's full of shit, too, when he's saying, yeah, it. like, you know, what, what's he going to say? But um, I don't know. It just goes to show that sometimes 
there's maybe not really good answers. And sometimes, you know, people, you know, in government sometimes have interest in not giving truthful answers. Or just giving an answer. Yeah, exactly. If it it makes you shove and go away, they'll give you an answer. Exactly. You know, and like, you know, we're talking about the the nuclear period. Um, You know, what would happen if um, they said, like, you know, okay, if we ever have a nuclear exchange, you know, we're pretty much all done for. So, you know, who cares? So don't worry about it, yeah. Exactly. But like a lot of their... um, material that they put out at the time it was kind of like well this is how you survive an atomic attack and you know it'll be just fine just you know do this or that or whatever and you know i've heard this i don't know if this is necessarily true but a lot of the bomb shelters that they had back in the you know back in the day that we talked about um you know they did have some provisions in there but the one thing they all definitely had was body bags because they um you know like i said i'm not sure if this is exactly the case but you know, they were kind of iffy whether or not these things would actually protect people, but it would definitely aid in casualty collection. Sure. You know, it's like if you have a school and, um, you know, all the kids are in the classroom, you know, that's that's a, a huge mess afterwards. But, you know, if they're all all cramped up in the basement together, that's, you know, pretty easy to take care of that. So, you know, just kind of something to think about. Um, you know, maybe if you're, you know, told everything's going to be okay or... Um, you know, if you if you just do this, everything will be fine. Uh, you know, maybe put a little bit extra thought in there and um, just kind of come to your own conclusions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think part of that is like, so what does the government want you to do today? And what they want you to do today is whatever it is that you do in society. Exactly. If you are on food stamps and you sit on your ass and do nothing and collect and go out and spend the food stamps into the phony economy on the 1st and the 15th, they want you to keep doing that. If you work your freaking ass to the bone uh, and are barely above the poverty level living in, a, in a, a single white trailer trying to get ahead, they want you to keep doing that. If you are a well-to-do business person that employs people, they don't give a shit where you are. But as long as you work and pay your taxes or don't work and spend other people's taxes, their system runs. So if something's going to prevent you from doing that, they'll say whatever they got to say to all the little gerbils running in their respective wheels. Exactly. Yeah, the only thing that matters is keeping the trains running on time. So it's. It, there is there is some definite truth to that, and some people I don't think understand the trains metaphor. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what do you think all of this stuff has to say about the necessity of building community in our world today? Um, well, one thing about the, the films, I guess, that we've talked about, um, you know, in 1984, too, is there's no real superheroes in these things. And, um, you know, and these, the characters in these are uh, pretty reflective of real people um, once you come down to it. It's not like... Um, a lot of uh, doomsday fiction where you got the guy with a heart of gold and a pocket full of silver that saves the day without saying any four-letter words at the end of the day. But um, these people, they have to rely on other people. And um, I absolutely think that's the case. Um, you know, no one really stands alone, you know, especially in bad situations. You have to um, connect with people. Uh, you know, you're stronger if... Um, you know, you're stronger with others usually if you connect with the right people. Yeah, I I would agree with that definitely. I, I think that also like the way people learn today 
about things like we're doing and discussing today is through community. Yeah. They, yeah. They're not really going to – most people aren't going to be like, gee, I really wonder what it was like in 1985 right. if they, you know, they were born in, in, in 90. Um, or they just think they'll watch like the '70s shorts and say, "Oh, okay, on reruns." Oh, I was that's like the way people actually learn these bigger lessons is broadly through community. I'm sure there's plenty of people that have become part of my audience or your audience that came in for one specific interest, and then as they become part of the instead of they're just a listener, they're in a forum or they're in a group or they're on Facebook with other listeners. They're on a Zello channel or whatever. They start communicating with each other. They develop a much broader view of the world. And then I think the most important thing that comes out of that, and the thing I've been trying to teach forever, is pattern recognition. Because that's what we're really talking about. Like, it's, it's never going to be exactly the same, but when you see the pattern, you recognize the pattern. If you look at that in a plant, for instance, I could look at a plant and go, I don't know what that is. But I'm pretty sure it's a legume. Yeah. Right, because it has certain characteristics that look like a legume. So I can be like, I'm not really sure exactly what form of government that is, but it looks awfully fascist. Right? What kind of fascist? Don't know. Have to do a little taxonomy to figure it out. But that looks very fascist to me because the basic tenets of economic fascism are in place. Or that looks pretty socialist, or that you know, or that looks pretty you know, like pretty much like some sort of overstep of the boundaries of surveillance. Yeah. I'm not really sure exactly what part of the Constitution it violates, but I'm pretty sure if I dig deeper, I'm gonna find out. And and that all starts with like just a basic pattern recognition, or somebody starts you know one of the empty suits and talking heads on TV starts blah 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 blah. You're like, oh, this bullshit again. Yeah, and and I think the only way people can take back personal sovereignty is to start having that pattern recognition. Like, yeah, okay, I doesn't even matter what comes out next because I know this is bullshit. Yeah, exactly. I think that's one of the cool things about 1984 too. Um, you know, some of it seems a little overblown. Um, you know, like you know, making war is peace. Um, well, I, I guess that I mean I can see that one, but you know, freedom is yeah. slavery, ignorance ignorance is strength. Um, seems a little overboard, but. Um, a lot of these patterns that you're talking about in this book are basically like, you know, cranked up to 11. So, you know, you, <laughs> they kind of become, um, I don't know, like these exaggerated examples maybe help you recognize the, you know, not so um, obvious examples, you know, in, in your own life when you apply them, you know? No, I, I completely agree. Um, and I, I think like that is, that is probably another thing. Like, so in all of this, Prepper fiction, uh, broad dystopian fiction, all this stuff. If you actually told it the way that, let's say, Man in the High Castle is, you get criticism and you get a lack of understanding. It's almost like these these content creators, no matter what type of content they're creating, they have to push it, you know, on a scale of one to ten, like you said, to the eleven, <laughs> to crack through. The, the 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 cynicism of people, and I think that's what they're hoping. Like they'll crack in, and then you go, wait a minute. Yeah. Oh, it's it is sunny out, and the guy that's leading the place isn't chopping people's heads off with a sword, but it, it kind of feels like the same type of thing going on right here. Yeah, exactly. You know, no one would really want to make a, a book or movie about kind of a mundane disaster. You know, so kind of plays into that. Well, that too. Yeah, I mean, like. That's why I think, like, some of this stuff with, like, doomsday prepper shows and stuff and all, and it's like, I've had those people talking to me. I'm like, listen, if you guys did this the right way, 
you wouldn't do anything that you're doing because the right preparedness level makes most disasters look like an inconvenience. That's the whole freaking point. Exactly, yeah. You know, and, and of course, they don't want to hear any of that because it, it doesn't sell well to the lowest common denominator. But, and I think that's a, a big part of kind of what we're talking about. You have to see the pattern and then back it into where you're at in the world and say how much of that pattern matches. Yeah, exactly. Like they went, no one would tune in if it was a show about, um, you know, have enough groceries so you don't have to go out during the next ice store, you know, and just kind of <laughs> wouldn't play so, very well. So when we look at this, like another thing that you can kind of do to figure things out is as we look at things like, you know, 1984, we look at things like uh, Red Dawn or whatever. In those, who do you think had it best and, and what can we take away from that? Like, who did who did well? Well, one thing I think in Red Dawn, um, there's a character, uh, Mr. Mason. You know, that's the old guy that they go visit. And, um, you know, now you hear all these stories about, you know, the, the people in the town are starving and things look pretty bad. But this guy seemed to be sitting pretty good, really. And um, in the, the book I wrote about Red Dawn uh, a while back ago, I wrote an essay about this. But, um, you, you know, the guy, he has horses, um, you know, he has chickens, you see canned vegetables, which, you know, if you look at the timeline of the movie, you know, the invasion starts in September and, um, you know, you see the canned vegetables in November or whatnot. Um, so, you know, it means that, you know, he would have had a garden established before all of this. Um, you know, you see fireplace, um, basically just general preparedness measures that would have been part of this guy's life. And, um, you know, they and also they're kind of on the outside of town, not necessarily within it or too far out of it. So, you know, they're still close enough to kind of know what's going on, but far enough to have some distance from uh, a lot of the bad stuff. So I, I think that's uh, kind of a cool character that um, really, um, I don't know, kind of a, a champion of preparedness, I guess, in the film, if you really look at it. Now, in 1984... Uh, people are grouped into pretty much three categories. You have the inner party, which would be, I, know, I guess, kind of parallel to you know our our one percent. You know, we might use that term. Um, the outer party, which would be, I think they said it's like the top, or you know, fifteen percent of the population, which is, um, you, you know, kind of like just bureaucrats, I guess, within the party. That's where the main character Winston is. But the majority of people um, are called the proles, you know, from proletarian. And these people, their living conditions are worse, but they're also don't live under the same kind of fear that Winston lives under. Uh, because, well, they, they don't take part in the party. Um, people are given a test. Uh, if they want to go into the party, it's not, um, you know, um, inherited or whatnot. But um, there's kind of a contrast in the book uh, between the life Winston leaves and kind of the more carefree life of the proles. So, you know, maybe, you know, they don't quite have everything that Winston has, but Winston doesn't necessarily have enough to justify not having a lot of these human experiences that the proles have in 1984. Um, there's one scene where Winston is on a train and he's about to go meet Julia. Um, you know, they're going to have their forbidden love affair i guess out in the country but he's sharing a train car with a family of proles and um you know they're just kind of openly carrying on um freely traveling um out you know and openly saying they're out to get some black market butter or something like that 
and you know Winston is sneaking around to have this very human experience. So it kind of says something about um, you know sometimes if you have a choice to participate or not in something that you find um, egregious that you know maybe you shouldn't participate in it. Yeah, no, I completely <laughs> agree. It's proactive apathy. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, like if you think about let's say let's look at Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. Who made out the best in Nazi Germany? Oh. The middle class shop owner that was not Jewish that lived in a city that didn't get bombed. Exactly. Yeah. There, there, I mean, you can you can want a different answer, but that uh, you know, unfortunately for the German people. There weren't a lot of places that didn't eventually suffer under Allied bombing, but that's who did best. Where the, the where the war never came directly through your backyard, in the end, those people did okay. Yep. Most of the people that ended up being, and I'm not talking about like the Holocaust and all, but but in Germany that ended up like they were okay, they weren't hauled away for ethnic reasons, and eventually they were shot in the head or something like that, were people that got involved. No. And, or they were members of the resistance, so and they had their own way of getting involved. And I'm glad those people did it. I'm glad they stood up. Uh, my father-in-law and his family were part of the resistance uh, in the Netherlands mm-hmm. under under occupation. But my, I guess he would be my my father-in-law's dad. So my wife's great my wife's grandfather ended up, you know, a, a hair's breadth from death in a internment camp. And they were actually going to shoot him in the head the next day, and then they got liberated. And he was a, you know, a guy that was almost six foot tall, and he was under a hundred pounds in weight at that point. Oh yeah. So did he do well, or did the people that just kind of went on about their business do better? Yeah. They- and I'm not saying that you know that that's the way to be, but in some instances, especially when you're not going to the 11s, like you're saying, yeah. Maybe like in this world that we're in right now, what is the best thing to do? Yeah. Build your life. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, I know you've uh, mentioned before that um, he was in the Dutch Marine Corps. And, Correct. Um, I did some uh, training with those guys while I was in the Marine Corps, and I have the utmost respect for those guys. That's uh, a real top-notch organization there. Yeah. In fact, at the time, because of what had happened, um, they were actually brought to the United States <laughs> for for basic boot camp. Oh wow! And then they were sent back over because you couldn't. You like when they started getting people to, to volunteer to be part of the war effort, there was no way to do it there. Yeah. It, it was it was crazy. So he came to the United States, went through boot camp, and then went back to Europe. It, it's an insane yeah, time in history. That. That, yeah, I didn't know that happened. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like I said, it's kind of crazy. Um, and then those guys, he didn't because of who his dad was. He ended up in Europe for five years uh, serving out his, his enlistment, as an MP, mm-hmm. uh, because they, they asked his father, what do you want? And he said, I want my son. And they were like, with what the family went through, there's no... But a lot of the guys he went through with, they went to the Pacific Theater, and they were involved in cleanup operations for quite a while after the war was technically over. Yeah. And a lot of those guys died. Yeah, the Dutch, they had their hands full um, after World War II in Indonesia. And, you know, that, that's something we'll talk about on the podcast coming up on the timeline, so... Okay, okay. <laughs> So on that, I mean, this has been a great interview. Like, tell people about your podcast. Um, well, you can find it on iTunes under Cold War Cast, or just go to coldwarcast.com. But what it is, it's a, a podcast, or I guess at this point I'll, I'm going to say it's like a, a project because I'm going to do a little bit more on social media. Um, 
But it's chronicling the history of the Cold War with a large emphasis on the pop culture of the time. Um, you know, like I said, I wrote that book about Red Dawn uh, years ago. And, you know, once you kind of get past the surface, you see a lot of these, um, you know, movies and books and, you know, photographs and so forth. Um, they they say a lot about the period of the time. And, you know, I kind of want to um, tell history through that. But we started off the podcast all the way back uh, talking about the Communist Manifesto and, um, you know, kind of outlining what's in that and explaining socialism through three famous books, um, The Iron Heel, which is really good, The Jungle, and um, Looking Backwards. And, you know, I've gone um, through the rise of the Bolsheviks, um, through World War II and some of the kind of uneasy relationships between the West and the Soviet Union, and, you know, covered like a, a few movies. Um, you know, at this period, there's a little bit less pop culture than there is now where I'm in the timeline. So, like, you know, I've done some Eisenstein films, um, the song Katusha, the famous Russian song, um, you know, some speeches like the Iron Curtain speech. And uh, right now in the timeline, I'm in, you know, probably 1948-ish or so. So these are really exciting times. Uh, you know, we're kind of at the dawn of the atomic age, Um kind of the anti-colonial movements coming up. Uh, we've got a lot of cool, like, sci-fi films to talk about, and, you know, Stol- you know, Solzhenitsyn, 1984 even, uh, about due for a podcast on that. So, yeah, it's been kind of fun, and, um, yeah, you can find me uh, iTunes and coldwarcast.com. And, and, man, I appreciate it being with you today, Ryan, and I'll make sure there's a link to that in today's show notes. Okay. Yeah, and if um, you know anyone wants to follow on social media, um, I've decided to hitch my wagon with the sites minds.com for social media. Um, you know, I've got uh, Facebook and Twitter and so forth too, but I really like Minds um, as far as a platform for content creators. So, um, you know, I encourage everybody to check me out on on Minds. You know, like Minds, like a mind is a terrible thing to. You're going to make me sign up for that because you're the second guest to mention Minds in two consecutive interviews. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, the last guest that we had uh, mentioned Minds, and I had never heard of it before, and I'm like, I don't have time for another platform. So two in a row is the universe going, hey, dummy, you know how you talk about pattern recognition all the time? Here's a pattern. Who shots in the head? (laughs) Did they mention the cryptocurrency? Uh, no. Oh, yeah. They, well, they've got a point system right now. Uh, oh, I'm going to go back and get that guy and punch him in the head. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of the audience is kind of cringing. It's like, yeah, we're talking about 1984 and bring up cryptocurrency again. Yeah. But um, they've got a point system to it where uh, you can wire people points, like, you know, if you like a post or whatnot. And, um, you know, kind of like what we were talking about, how uh, social media kind of drags you in. Uh, yeah. points for signing in every hour. But um, uh. within the month, I believe, they're... Uh, oh, yeah, and you can also wire dollars and Bitcoin to people and so forth through it, too. But um, they're introducing uh, cryptocurrency through it. Their own token, okay. But, yeah. I'll definitely uh, check it out. It's cool. Um, you know, Facebook is, you know, good. You know, everybody's there, of course. But, um, you know, as a, as a very small content creator, it's kind of hard sometimes to get noticed really where you know mines um it's a smaller pool but you're more likely to get noticed you can boost your uh post through um the point system and so forth like you know for a thousand points you can get a thousand people to see it 
So, um, yeah, if somebody's a content creator out there, um, I would definitely look into mines. Um, it, the graphics um, are a lot better, like the picture resolution or whatever. So there's a lot of cool, like, art and photography people on there. And um, there, there's no real, like, free speech issues. You know, pretty much anything goes on mines. So Gotcha. I would, yeah, if you don't like it, don't out. look at it. You know, don't bitch at it. Just go look at something else. Exactly. Unfollow, block, whatever. I mean, yeah, I understand. <laughs> hey, man, so I'll check that out, and I really enjoyed it. I think people should definitely check out your podcast again, ColdWarCast.com. Ryan, thanks for being with us today, man. Thank you, Jack. Enjoyed it. Great guest, great topic. Really, you guys should check them out. You have to check out Minds.com, too, and damn it, so am I. I don't have time right now. I'm so busy this time of year. But, uh, man, I'll have to check it out. Anyway, guys, look. If you, uh, if you want to support this show and you want to do it in a way that's like financially painless, all you got to do is a lot of you guys buy stuff online all the time. When you're going to shop online, go to tspaz.com first. Go to tspaz.com and do your shopping there and buy the stuff you're going to buy anyway and you help support our show. You can also see all of my reviews, specifically of Amazon items, and they're all categorized and things like that. Now, I'm bringing one back around again for you that I haven't brought around for, oh, God, about six, eight months. Uh, and it is one of the products that I, I think I've moved the most of over the years. It is the Shard Slash Carry 9.5 Smart Pressure Canner Cooker. So this is an electric pressure canner, pressure cooker, and slow cooker. It does everything the Instapot does, which the big Instapot craze, ah, Instapot, I'm going to lose my whatever, right? Um, and more. It's been around longer, and it's a damn solid product. It has greater capacity as well. Um, they were selling anywhere between 130 to 180 bucks for the last couple of years. They've gone in and out of stock multiple times. They are back in stock now. Uh, it doesn't look like there's, you know, when it says like there's 13 left, ordered out, none of that shit. So I don't know how many they have in stock, but you know, more than 13. Um, and they have it priced right now on sale at $94.15. This is a product that I think belongs in the kitchen of every prepper. There's been never been a better time to get into it than right now. I'll say this again. I'm almost blue in the face saying this. Yes, it's safe for pressure canning. I don't care whose whiny, cry, baby, bitch blog post you read. There's millions of these in use right now being used for pressure canning. The manufacturer had been sued senseless with a class action lawsuit by now if it wasn't safe for pressure canning. If you follow the instructions that come with it, when you do your pressure canning, it's actually safer than it is to do with an old school canner because if anything goes wrong, it won't start the cycle. Heat is heat. Pressure is pressure. It's a pressure canner. The articles you've read were written before this product existed. Okay? I've said my piece. However, I want to tell you about something I just did with my pressure cooker canner that wasn't canning. Because it's not just a canner. Last night, I was going through my stuff that came from ButcherBox. And in there was a package of baby back ribs. And I was like, self... It's 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and it is 13 degrees outside. You don't want to go out there and put this shit in the smoker, and if you did, you're not going to be eating until midnight. So, self, how can you make these? And I thought, here's how I'm going to make them. I took a bottle of coffee stout beer, and I dumped it in my shard pressure cooker canner. 
I set the little rack down there so that the ribs wouldn't be sitting down in there. I put my two racks of ribs in there. I liberally coated them with Chef Keith Snow's low and slow barbecue, a little extra salt and pepper. And I took some smoky honey, or smoky apple barbecue sauce. It comes from a place in New Hampshire called Zeb's and put a little bit of it on it in there. I closed it up and I pressure cooked those suckers for 40 minutes. When it ended, I pushed the little thing off. Steam came out. No, you don't have to wait a freaking hour like the directions say. Uh, I'll let Stephen Harris rant on directions just trying to prevent people. Once the little thing goes down, the thing will open. It'll open fine. It's safe. I opened it up. I took them out. I set them on an oven rack. Uh, a little like stick-free pan with a little grid pan like you cook bacon on like we've talked about recently. Set them on there. I let them rest for about 20 minutes. I'm not going to tell you why. Trust me. That's the way to do it. I want to keep this short enough so the show don't get too long. All right. Then I coated them with more of that Zeb's Smoky Apple Barbecue, popped them in the oven at 350 degrees, which, by the way, resting them for 20 minutes is about how long the oven needs to come up to temperature. I popped them in there for about 20 more minutes at 350, kicked the broiler on at 550 for about two minutes, and if you go to my Facebook, you can see what they looked like. They were fan-freaking-tastic. I don't know that I'll ever put ribs in the smoker again. A lot of things are great in the smoker, Ribs, they're, you gotta really stay on it. Man, this pressure cooker method is awesome. I'll be making stew tonight in this same product using the slow cooker function. It's a great product. It's a great price and it cans. And it cans so easily, push a button and walk away, that you'll actually can shit. Check it out. Again, never been a better price. You can see I'm a little excited about it, right? Because I know how much it has an impact on people that have bought one. Again, hundreds of these have been purchased through my affiliate link. I've had zero complaints back to me. That's what I know I've made a good recommendation. When it works for me, it works for my friends, it works for you guys, and I don't hear anything bad, I know it's a solid recommendation. And I think this one's gotten better over time. All right. So that brings us to the end of the show, which brings us to the song of the day. And the song is called... Unforgiven 3 by Metallica. Now look, guys, I grew up in the 80s. We talked about that today. And I was an 80s rock kid, man. I, you know, my typical attire going to school was some faded-ass blue jeans, probably a couple holes in them, somebody's black concert T-shirt, often Metallica. I had long hair. I know that sounds crazy. I had long hair. And uh, like every, you know, by, by 1986 I had it, or 86, 87 I had my first car. It was a Pontiac Grand Prix, a 70s model with a 455 in it. And the first thing I did is I went out and I got a Radio Shack stereo head, the best uh, 6x9 speakers I could afford, which were not that great, and a 20-amp amplifier and popped it in there. And I listened to a lot of Metallica back in the day, right? Um, but my era of Metallica was like Ride the Lightning, Master of Puppets, Justice for All, uh, in the Army, then, of course, the first Unforgiven in 1991 on the album Metallica. And it kind of trailed off for me. You know, I moved to Texas. I got into country music. I went back to some of my, my family's roots with singer-songwriter stuff. And uh, I still like this music, but I just don't listen to it as much anymore. So I didn't know that there was such a thing as Unforgiven 2, let alone Unforgiven 3. But I really like it. And when I listen to music like this, it kind of does put me back in that whole era that we're talking about, the 1980s. And there are things that I miss about it. There's things I don't miss, but there's things I miss. Being a carefree, long-haired kid that didn't give a shit yet, uh, sometimes I miss that guy. But this song, Unforgiven 3, is about coming to grips with forgiving yourself for the wrongs that you've done. And the realization 
that you can't forgive others until you forgive yourself. And the, the, the character in the storyline struggling with why can't I forgive myself. I think this is a hugely important topic because we've talked, you know, about the darkness sometimes that leads to things like suicide. And I'm going to tell you, it's the, un, the, the, the lack of ability to forgive oneself sometimes for things that really aren't that bad that often leads to that place. And if the survival podcast is here to do anything, it's to help you survive. And if you end your own life, you failed in that, and I failed in my mission. So we need to understand that. It also leads to something that I've had conversations with, with, with someone about recently, with the concept of narcissism. And most people think of narcissism as people that just think they're the greatest in the world and whatever. And they, they do give that off, and they do put themselves first, but they are also usually the people, the reason they are that way is they're stuck in this world. They can't forgive themselves for something. They actually loathe themselves. They hate themselves. And it destroys all attempts at relationships with other people. So if you feel you are, if you have dubbed yourself, remember the original, I dubbed the Unforgiven, and a lot of people didn't know what the words were? Because you didn't have, you know, people today don't have the album things to go look, look it up online. Anyway, you have to get past that. To move forward in life, you have to let go of your past and what you've done wrong. If there's something you can do about it, if there's some kind of reckoning that can occur, if there's some kind of making things right, then by all means go do it. But if there isn't, then remember what I always say. You can fog a mirror, your mission on, on earth is not over yet. And the one way we can make a reckoning for things we've done wrong that can't be corrected is by making the most of what lies in front of us. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
a lot of golden treasure. How could he know this new dawn's light would change his life forever? How can I be lost if I've got no way? 